0: Welcome to the Portland Real Estate Podcast, Oregon and Southwest Washington's number one show for real estate news and information. Without further ado, here are your hosts and a couple of guys who as busy realtors and successful brokerage owners know a thing or two about real estate. Steve Nassar of Premier Property Group and Joe Fistolo of Soldera Properties.
1: This is officially episode number 153. And we got a great podcast today. What's great about it is we have these topics once in a while in our field where, you know, just only enough to be dangerous. But then there's things that change so quickly that it's just easier to say, you know what, I don't know. You talk to this guy, he's an expert. And what we have today on our show is the ever changing land use changes affecting Oregon real estate? And to introduce our, our two guests, let me introduce my co host, Steve Nassar.
0: Thanks, Joe. Thanks for the introduction. Hey, I'm excited to have on here with us Jamie Housley and Ezra Hammer from the prestigious law firm Jordan Ramus, PC. And Ezra is not a stranger to the podcast. He has been on here before. It was way back in the day. It was just me and Tucker and we had Ezra on. He was working at the Home Builders Association. What was your position there again, Ezra? I think it's in our intro piece that we sent out to everybody. You were government affairs, right? Legal?
2: Yeah, I was government affairs director and then VP. Had the pleasure of working with the uh, the home builders on on a bunch of fun stuff.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Ezra comes with quite a pedigree. He's a licensed attorney. He's He's been on the legal side. He's worked with some home builders. He did some land acquisition with a large builder. He was in a VP role as well. Actually, I run, about for six months now, It's I started a mastermind with a couple local builders that I work with. Riverside Homes is one of them. Craig Shuck is is in the mastermind. And then Boylan Holmes is a good friend of mine. Eli Boylan, we grew up together. He's He's a really strong builder in the Salem market. And Ezra has also been a pivotal part of that mastermind with us since the very beginning. And just recently, not even a month ago, as a guest, we had Randy Sebastian from Renaissance Homes. Most of our listeners are very familiar with him. He met up with us and spent a couple hours as a guest, it was a really, really insightful and and fun, lively mastermind that we had. Just kind of talking all things building and development and the gotchas and the opportunities and all that fun stuff. Well, in that process, a couple of things. First of all, I learned that you guys, you two, Jamie and and Ezra, now are the legal counsel for both those entities, which are very strong, big, you know, reputable companies: Renaissance Homes and Riverside Homes. And so through that process, Ezra and I came up with this idea. Let's get you guys on the podcast. Let's have you bring some, some tremendous value to our listeners and talk about what's going on in Oregon and land use and development and laws and legal and all that fun stuff. So let me just let you guys, with with no further introduction, take it away. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and, and what you're going to share with us today and our listeners.
2: Sure. Well, thanks again, Steve and Joe, for having us on. And again, I'm I'm here joined by our team lead and partner here at Jordan Ramis, Jamie Housley. Jamie has about three, three and a half decades. Working on three decades. <laughs> give or take of experience in land use. And we've been getting into some really, really exciting stuff. It's it's a wild time for land use. In Oregon, the governor is getting highly involved and highly engaged, and that's having some fantastic trickle-down effects at the local levels. At the same time, we're continuing to see tension between the need for constructing housing and existing neighbors who are concerned about construction happening nearby them. And so those tensions are playing out at the hyper-local level and greatly impact the realtor community so far as... These homes need to either get built so you can sell them or, or or they're not getting built at all. So that's why we're so excited to join
0: you today. Awesome. Well, in the agenda that we set out, we said that we we're going to start by talking about Washington County, a ban on new housing in Washington County. That sounds scary. What the heck is that about?
3: So
4: this resulted from some litigation several years ago regarding trees out in Washington County. and An environmental outfit decided that one development project in particular wasn't doing enough to preserve the the trees within the project. And so they took an appeal up to LUBA, which then thus resulted in, in an enforcement order against Washington County, which required Washington County to update their significant natural resources ordinance, effectively to try to protect significant trees that would be in future development projects. The LCDC issued this enforcement order a couple years ago, and it's been basically resuscitated again as of this spring. And as a result of that, Washington County said, well, we're just going to hold all development applications through a moratorium until we can work our way through that that process. So, so it's a pretty harsh result for or something that should be a pretty simple fix.
0: Is this officially happening? And if so, when and for how long? It's officially happened.
4: I think for the the moratorium will I think be there for the foreseeable future while they work through the process. You know, hopefully, they can get get through this within a year and turn back the allow development applications to once again start to proceed forward. But you know, it's really unfortunate that you know we're here in the middle of a housing crisis and we need to put more units on the ground, and yet we can't do that in a place where people really would like to live in Washington County.
0: Wow, I mean, that sounds that sounds massive because I mean, Riverside, that's like the vast majority of where their development is done is Washington County. They really focus there. Are you so you're saying no new permits will be or no 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 new development land use or engineering applications will be taken. What segment of it is particularly?
3: yeah, basically
4: no new development applications and i I should just be very cautious here i'm not talking about the city of beaverton city of hillsborough those are different jurisdictions this would just be unincorporated urban washington
0: gotcha gotcha okay okay that is that is good clarification okay there's
1: there's no exception for just bare farmland with no trees on it that's just no exceptions whatsoever yeah that's
2: And that that's kind of what's particularly galling, Joe, is is that the county has some outdated mapping as it relates to where significant natural resources are. And essentially, the state was saying not only is your mapping outdated, but the process with which you use to approve developments in those areas may not be up to par. And so we're just going to put the kibosh on all new housing generally.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. What percentage? I and I, I don't mean I know you're not going to be exact here, but roughly, if we look at Washington County, what percentage doesn't fall within like a Beaverton or Hillsborough or Sherwood and is in the un, unincorporated? Is that 10%, 20%, more or less?
2: So the, the area that we're talking about that's directly impacted is, is several hundred acres, but these are acres that otherwise could be prime for residential development. So we're not we're not talking we're not talking anything outside of the urban area. And as Jamie said, nothing that is in an incorporated jurisdiction. But there are these pockets in Washington County, such as Aloha, such as north of the freeway that are seeing tremendous residential growth. And those are potentially some of the areas impacted.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does this include Areas that are unincorporated Washington County that, but could be annexed into a city.
2: Potentially, depending on what the city's potential growth pattern is. Yeah.
0: So this this moratorium or whatever you want to call it would not allow it to get annexed into the city for during that time period, and so it would just have to sit idly waiting for for this to end.
4: I think if. The property, if a city was willing to annex the property and take it out of Washington County's jurisdictional hands, then it would become, become under the purview or jurisdiction of that city. And, you know, that would be one way to get around the moratorium. I think that the difficulty is, as a lot of these areas aren't really ready to be annexed to any cities there. So we're really talking about, like I said, several hundred
3: acres that
0: are sort of an island within hmm. other cities around. Mm-hmm. It. Hmm. So it's, it's safe to say that because development takes a while, right? If they're not doing stuff in these areas for the next year, we're not going to feel it in the next year per se, but what we'll feel it is probably three years from now, right? There'll suddenly be this window where there's just not a lot of unincorporated Washington County development bringing on new housing. Is Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, I think that that's
4: a very, very accurate statement. And the way I would, if your listeners or you guys can remember back in 2008, when the Great Recession happened and the development pipeline sort of shut shut off, it it doesn't turn immediately back on when the need sort of arises. And so in 2012, when you wanted to start people who were out actually trying to buy houses again, you know... We weren't seeing new development projects hit the ground until 2015, 2016, just because of the, the lead time it takes to get through the process.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I often think of it as a, like a train starting from a dead stop, right? It just takes a while for that machine to just start churning, right? And getting some speed and, and building and development is very similar to that. And the opposite of that is true, right? In 2007, When the writing was on the wall that something bad was about to happen in real estate, it's not like everybody stopped building or slowed down their building. They had all these projects going. They had to kind of, the the train was going 80 miles an hour, couldn't stop immediately or slow down immediately, right?
1: Curious about something. Anytime there's like government that we're force fed with kind of new regulations, I always like to know what's behind the curtain. So I'm not asking you for fact at the moment. I'm asking you maybe for your opinion. I understand saving the trees is very important, but usually there's something more behind it. And usually that's money. Or is the county looking to, are they trying to get these unincorporated people to annex? Or what do you suspect the real reason for this sort of ban on new construction in Washington County?
4: I just suspect that it's really costly to go do the analysis that is going to be required at Washington County. And, you know, I think a lot of jurisdictions sort of struggle with where to prioritize their tax dollars. And unfortunately, this is sort of a low, low desired thing. You know, it may ramp up in terms of importance based upon the housing needs of Washington County. But for the time being, I think that this is just sort of gotten a low level priority and now we're sort of in a must act situation
0: and why do you think washington county dropped the ball so much i mean of all the counties in the state you'd think they're a little bit more with it i mean than say a rural or you know some something that's is there any guesses why they're so far behind on this these surveys or of trees versus other counties
2: I think there's two things to consider here, Steve. One is because it's Washington County and so important, you have a lot of eyeballs on it. You have a lot of people that care about things that they might otherwise not be as focused on in a a more rural setting. And you've seen a ton of growth in these areas. So you have neighbors who are mad about that growth and are starting to think creatively about how to stop it. You also have an interesting interplay here, which is the rule that the state actually utilized to stop. To put the ban on construction is a, is a state law that was recently implemented and is starting to get used statewide, but is actually intended to promote the development of housing. And so this is a law that came about during started, The conversation started in 2015. The law was actually implemented in 2017, but it was the intention of the legislature to make it, clear, make it clear to local jurisdictions that the rules that they put in place couldn't have a bunch of that wishy-washy stuff in them that often frustrates development and confuses people. But local jurisdictions, to Jamie's point, just haven't had the resources or the focus necessarily to go back to their existing codes and make the changes that would be necessary to implement state law. So you have this weird convergence of... The legislature saying, hey, we need to make things more clear for builders and the development community and local jurisdictions not having the time or money or focus necessarily to go make those changes. And what what anti-growth activists were able to identify here in this situation is essentially that disconnect. And they pointed to that disconnect. And the state said, hey, yeah, your rules aren't good enough. Therefore, we're going to put this ban in place.
0: Mhm mhm. And who who would you say are the the biggest losers? I mean, landowners obviously are are first and foremost, which is which is, you know, average joe's. And then do you think there's some builder developers that are sitting on land that they're just going to have to pay interest on for a year that and that's just going to come up in the price of the houses when they come online, right? I mean, it has to. Yeah, ultimately
4: We're- the consumer that loses here, because you're going to have additional holding costs for the the land here, and that will often get reflected back in the, the price of the house or the price of the lot. It goes time kind to of sell those.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there anything that can change this in your opinions, or is this just it is what it is, and it's going to take a year? And
4: well, I mean, I think they have to go through the analysis and get get through that process. So I think it's you know. Fortunately, we're, we're sort of
2: stuck with what with what it is for the moment. Hmm. You know, especially for your listeners that are interested in Washington County and may have property out there, you know, certainly applying pressure to the elected officials in Washington County to make sure that they do this analysis quickly, that they do a good job with it so they can withstand further scrutiny is absolutely important. You know, as we discussed, these sorts of you know, analyses around natural resources just don't raise the level of, of concern for a lot of elected officials. And so they don't prioritize this research. But if they start hearing from constituents that, hey, this ban is impacting us, this is this is very negative to my livelihood, then that'll help light a fire to make sure that this analysis gets done quickly and well.
0: And that's Washington County. So are, you're, you're advising our listeners if they wanted to to try to affect change the powers that be at washington county itself like is that commissioners county commissioners yeah, that's right. Right? yeah. yes okay okay would be the ones to reach out to okay well that's helpful let's move on to your next topic that you guys wanted to, sh- to share with us and that's oregon's recent law that supports the adaptive reuse of old commercial buildings into residential by the way i was watching cnbc literally an hour ago while i was getting ready in my bedroom and New York was talking about this. It was a it was a topic there on on the station where they were saying that there were 80 million square feet of vacant office space in New York City Manhattan, I guess is maybe specifically. And and they have changed some zoning laws that have allowed them to turn into to residential, but there was there was a developer that they were interviewing who's saying, look, that's not quite enough. We need some tax incentives. There's more to it. It's very costly to change this. So this is hot off the press. I mean, this is a a very relevant topic on a, on a national level right now. So tell us about Oregon's law and what what's going on with that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, this is top of a lot of people's tongues. You know, we have this weird, confluence, again, where you have an incredible housing need in so many of our, of our key cities, including most of our jurisdictions here in Oregon. And at the same time, with work from home becoming ever more prevalent, you have more and more underutilized commercial office space. And so people are starting to look at that and say, hey, can we can we marry those two issues together and find a solution? Los Angeles has actually been at the forefront of doing some incredible work here. They started allowing what we call adaptive reuse. That's the conversion Version of commercial into residential uses back in the late 90s in their downtown core. And that helped spur the creation of 12,000 units of housing. And if anybody's been to downtown Los Angeles in the past 10 years, you'll, you'll see that it's vibrant, that it, it has incredible commercial, a ton of people there, great, great opportunities to live, work, and play. And that whole community was spurred by the opportunity to do adaptive reuse. So a lot of other cities, including New York and including Portland, are starting to look at that and say, hey, is this something that we can we can do here and can be an asset to us? So as you talked about, there's really two pieces to the pie here that jurisdictions need to think about if, if this is something they want to encourage. The first is kind of the regulatory hurdle, right? So if I'm a city, I can make it really friggin' hard, or I can make it really easy for a property owner to say, hey, I'm going to convert my commercial use into residential. And a big part of that is kind of the regulatory framework associated with the types of approvals you need to get to move forward with a project. What the state of Oregon recently did was pass some legislation that cut a lot of that red tape. They said, hey, cities, you can't require X, Y, and Z if an applicant wants to come forward and convert their existing commercial space into residential and that's really important because what it signals is hey if I'm a property owner now I know that there's a, a clear path forward for doing what I want to do and that the jurisdiction isn't going to be able to stop me just because they may find the the project not politically palatable The other piece is what you were hearing about on CNBC which is you know financing these things is, is particularly challenging anytime you're bringing a new product to market, the capital class is going to look at it and shrug its shoulders, right? Because we're basically saying we need a whole new housing typology that doesn't exist. And I can't point to comps to, but I want you to fund it. And so that capital is oftentimes very difficult to acquire. At the same time, not the the regulatory framework so much, but the building code environment may add tremendous cost to these conversions. The city of Portland is a prime example. You know, We have an earthquake retrofit ordinance in place that requires you to do significant seismic upgrades depending on the type of building and the type of use of that building. Oftentimes, those upgrades are triggered when you seek to change something within your building footprint. And so those requirements come into play when you want to do an adaptive reuse. And they can be very expensive. So you could be adding tens of thousands of dollars to the cost of one door just to upgrade the building and make it structurally sound. So those are, the, those are the two pieces that make the capital really important and something that we need to work on. But at the same time, we need to be doing exactly what the state is pushing for, which is liberalizing the regulatory framework such that you can even start thinking about getting
0: these sorts of projects approved. Gotcha. Are you aware of any... Such projects underway currently? So in speaking
2: with the department, uh, the the building and safety bureau here in the city of Portland, we're aware of at least two projects that are currently considering going through this process. Obviously, we can't share details about who they are, but it's definitely starting to, this idea is percolating through the development community. It's starting to percolate through property owners and, and people are thinking about Hey, could this be right for my building?
3: Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. But
2: I would I would say to Ezra as well, and
4: the same sort of discussion is also happening up in in Washington State in Seattle. Happened to meet with Governor Inslee's housing policy person, and this is a big topic of discussion: is how to do this adaptive reuse of commercial space, as well as I, I think allow residential by right in certain commercial zones because you know quite frankly the commercial the nature of commercial is changing now with the movement towards online shopping it's it's really become a function of people uh, using commercial services for personal services or restaurants or, st- or stuff like that and not so much for retail unless you're you're going to like you know a target or something and, and so there's Potentially a dearth of commercial land that could be repurposed over to housing and sort of create a a different environment for the cities in the northwest.
3: Mm
0: Hmm. Mm Hmm. It'll be interesting to see how this shakes out because I'll I'll be honest. I think Portland has an added challenge that even New York City doesn't have. In on CNBC, they were saying rents are at all time highs in Manhattan, and there is a shortage and a need for housing in their in their inner downtown core i've listed some some downtown condos they're not flying right now let's just be clear there so adding more housing stock in the downtown core i could see where that's going to be risky for developers and or you know people that are funding that development at this juncture anyway of of things so i think it'll be interesting to see how this works out i i hope it does and i and i see why On paper, it makes a lot of sense, but it'll be, you know, the devil's in the details usually in all these things, right?
1: Well, we do need the housing. I mean, that is, we still have a a housing shortage as of today with one change, and that is if COVID taught us anything, it taught us that we don't need to physically be somewhere to talk on our own cell phone and to work on our own computer. Let's cut the commute out and the parking and getting up to your office and, doing that all in reverse to get home, there's 90 minutes of your day that you could spend being more productive. And the rents here are nothing like Manhattan, but they ain't cheap. And so if you look at these businesses that are stroking checks for thirty dollars and $50,000 for their space in the building, I mean, that takes an extreme bite in your profit because of all that overhead. And if you could outfit people to be just as productive at home with high-speed internet and fast computers, good cameras, all that stuff, I think people are using a little more scrutiny of what's a actual face-to-face thing and what's a Zoom call versus what's a phone call. And I can see the retrofitting be a massive cost and ADA compliance and... Earthquake approved and all that. I see that being the thing that will hold that up considerably. And Willamette Week just had an article about the Portland building landscape and how we have all this vacancy and these buildings are just sitting there like Montgomery Park, for example. They're just sitting there with no use. And what can we do to make those buildings more productive today?
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I, I have a, a, a client that is looking at doing a demonstration project in the city of Tacoma and he's a former executive at Microsoft, really sort of just a really interesting guy. But his his take on sort of looking at the economics of it to kind of go to Ezra's point is, you know, the class A office buildings, you know, the ones that like we're in here in Pac West these aren't going to convert because quite honestly, the best highest use is for, you know, is for office. And it's probably not likely that the class C office space either, because that's where you kind of get business startups and um, lower stuff. It's it's really those class B buildings that are, are sort of like, they're not A, they're not C in between that really have the best opportunity to, to do something different. But, you know, in addition to having the regulations change to allow the residential use there there probably need to be a lot of incentives initially to make sure that those projects can become real and so they can demonstrate to the, the Wall Street funders that, that that's a provable model. I, I think for some place like the city of Portland that's got a lot of vacancy or city of Seattle that's got a lot of vacancy or city of San Francisco that's got even more vacancy than those two cities, they are really got to look at changing how they function as a city and trying to get residents back into the city and becoming a, a population center rather than an office center is um, that that shift has got to has got to happen based on this new sort of virtual working environment.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next topic. City of Portland decision to greatly increase the opportunity to build senior housing and residential zones. What's that about?
3: Yeah,
4: so I think as you know, we're becoming hyper focused on getting more housing into just all <laughs> venues or areas in the state. One of the things that the city of Portland's looking at is has been expanding the ability to put senior housing in residential in like common single family residential zoning districts. In fact, we we have one project that we're working on right now that's that's on appeal to Portland City Council that that does exactly that. And so it would be sort of in a traditional low density single family area, but we're able to put in a significant amount of units there because of the, the flexibility that the city of Portland has granted us in the zoning code. And it, it's a it's a good thing because it's providing a an answer to a need there, which is to have affordable housing for our, our seniors that may be struggling with the price increases that have happened during our decades of explosive growth here.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So expound on the opportunity. Say that. Explain that a little further, Jamie. I mean, what, what did they change?
4: They did some tweaks to the code to basically push out the ability to put effectively multiple family senior housing projects within certain zoning districts within the city of Portland, whereas before those were, you know, very much precluded and you had to go to like a commercial zone in order to to locate those. But now they're being allowed to be placed in in residential zoning districts. And so providing more opportunity to, for the development community to look at placing those in sort of traditional single family neighborhoods.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Do you find that most of these, and I've I've actually, believe it or not, I've I've listed and sold one of these in Gresham. <laughs> it was it was a client that reached out to me. It looked kind of like a massive house, and it was. There was an area of the house that was their residence, and then there was a whole wing that was adult care, right? And there was probably seven or eight rooms and you know, all the other the common area and everything. And we listed and sold it. This was this was a few years back. Do you find that most of these are built new, or are they remodeled structures that are converted into this?
4: I, I think what you're looking at is going to be mostly new construction because of the other regulatory things you need to do for you know the the care aspect of um, mm-hmm. this. So what we're going to see is probably a proliferation of these new builds that that have this senior living component to it and I, I think that a lot of the senior housing builders are kind of being smart about it you know realizing that there may be compatibility issues with uh, where they're promoting to place this and so they're, they're trying to design the buildings that so they aren't just looking commercial in nature this flat face for instance there, there's articulation and uh-huh. um, to make it fit in a little bit better to the neighborhoods.
0: Not that different than the middle housing stuff going on, right? Where they're building Um, duplexes and triplexes in in single family zoning areas, but they're trying to make them look to to fit in, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So in the past, it was very problematic and challenging to find residential areas to do this. You kind of had to go more towards commercial spaces, but Portland is making this easier to do. That's correct. Okay. Interesting. Interesting.
1: I think it's part of years ago, they had the, the RIP movement, residential infill project. And I think it started in Multnomah County. And we got information on it like a year to 18 months beforehand. But it was the thing that said, if your house is on a corner, you could have a duplex or a triplex or keep the existing house and have an ADU. And there were all these rules. Like they were saying, look, we need we need houses for people, not for cars. So they were discouraging cars and garages and they were discouraging the tall skinny where the stairs go up to the door. And if you have a garage, the garage can't take up more than 50% of the width. And now that that's kind of in place, I, I have people call all the time and they're like, hey, can I put an ADU here? And it's gotten so complicated that I just say, I don't know. And, and then you can go spend a month at the county and ask all the questions. And, and a month later, you're still, I really don't know. How is that residential infill project going with the, I think they implemented it in Multnomah County, and I think it's carrying over to Clackamas County, where it's more likely they could build an ADU than not these days. Yeah, these are great
2: questions, Joe, and, and you're absolutely right. There's, there's really a statewide effort to rethink about traditional single-family zones and allow for property owners to have greater freedom when it comes to building different housing typologies. As you talked about, how do we build better homes for people rather than just focus on hyper-prescriptive rules? So the City of Portland implemented what they called the Residential infill Project. You mentioned that, Steve. And that based on that project, which has been in place for a little over a year, the city just issued a report to talk about the implications associated with the changes. And the and the report I think is promising, but but you know needs to be tempered. And 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 it basically says, hey, we've been able to approve several hundred units of housing. These are housing typologies, either duplexes or triplexes, that in the rare case, up to four units that otherwise wouldn't have been permitted in this zone. And so we see this kind of incremental addition of density generally. And that's fantastic. But several hundred units a year in the city of Portland isn't going to close, you know, the 60,000 unit gap that this region has. Um, So it's a useful tool, but in and of itself, it doesn't get us where we need to be. Now, the state, kind of in conjunction with, but also kind of going on their, on their own path, crafted a set of rules generally that every single jurisdiction, whether you're a city or a county, need to implement. Those rules generally promote accessory dwelling units, attached homes, and the like and jurisdictions are going through the process of updating their rules to implement these new state requirements. So when you talk about Clackamas County now permitting some, we're seeing the same thing with the cities in Washington County. We're seeing the same things going down south. And interestingly enough, there's been a similar push in in Washington State. So we see new rules in Clark County around permitting smaller houses, and the like. I think this is a theme that we're going to continue to see. As the housing need exists, the state is going to need to think creatively about how to allow people to build homes so they can actually find the housing that they need. The one thing I'd say too with
4: that is Minneapolis-St. Paul was even ahead of Oregon on this, and they sort of did away with single-family zoning Couple of years ago. And I think their yield out of four years of doing that was only about 66 units, which was something really paltry. And so, to Ezra's point, like I think we need to throw, you know, every solution we can to try to get to that 60,000 unit number that we have a deficit here in the region on. And I think middle housing and, and, and RIP in and Portland is a way to, to start nibbling at that. But we, we need to get production. Going in a in a much larger volume, and so I think some of these these bigger ideas need to come to, to bear here on the region in order
0: to really crack that that
4: sixty thousand
0: nut
3: number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's segue real quick. This this wasn't a topic that you guys brought in here, but let's let's just talk about Multnomah County and the challenges to build there. I have heard builder after builder after builder just throw in the towel including Renaissance homes almost entirely and say, I can't build there anymore. It is such a nightmare to deal with. I mean, you guys have to be on the front lines of these th- problems. Is, is that an accurate statement? I mean, and what has to give there?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. We hear it from clients as well, day in and day out. Building in the city of Portland specifically has been challenging for years and it's gotten significantly harder. You you may have seen some articles in the Willamette Week and and the Oregonian recently about a kind of conversation the city is having about how to how to think about its development bureaus generally. The city of Portland, as as they like to trump it, has a really unique form of government. And this unique form of government has led to what we see as a really aggressive silo effect where different bureaus, they call them bureaus in the city instead of departments, may not even talk to each other or may have such a standoffish relationship that getting coordination between them can be exceedingly challenging. Now, where this comes into play with development is because if I want to build a new house or or a multifamily project in the city of Portland, I'm going to need support from multiple development bureaus to sign off on my plans and to coordinate their comments in such a way that I can revise my plans and get them approved. But when the bureaus themselves are at loggerheads and and not agreeing on what should or shouldn't be located in a particular place, this can cause significant delay and significant costs. I'll share an anecdote only so people get a sense of, of what we're talking about. One bureau is going to tell you what to put in your frontage. They're going to say, hey, your driveway can be this wide. I want a planar strip here. I want a tree here. I want some shrubs, etc. Another bureau is going to tell you, hey, I need X number of trees per linear foot of frontage. And then a third bureau is going to come in and tell you, hey, I need your utility connection point to be in a particular place. Now, If I'm dealing with a small lot, this can oftentimes lead to being told to put utility infrastructure and a tree and a driveway in the exact same location, which, Joe, you're smiling, you can't do it. Now, in pretty much every other major city in America... All of these requirements would have been reviewed together and integrated into a single document or set of documents that would guide what should go on my frontage. But in Portland, they're managed by different bureaus who, as I mentioned, don't necessarily agree with each other all of the time. So we get situations where builders will come to us and say, hey, I've been told to do three different things in this one particular place. I don't know how to address this issue. And absent better communication between the bureaus, it's very challenging to move those projects forward. Now, there has been some great conversation recently, particularly spurred by Commissioner Carmen Rubio, who's looked at this problem and said, guys, this doesn't make any sense. Why are we the only major city in America who does things this way? We need to consolidate the bureaus or those portions of the bureaus that relate to the development of development generally, but, but specifically with regards to housing, so that we can start making sure that our plans talk to each other, that our planners talk to each other, and that we're all on the same page with what our requirements are. And you know, we've heard from many in the development community that this is a fantastic idea. Kind of gone are the days where Portland should be hyper focused on being unique. We should really just be focused on doing things the right way so that people like Renaissance Homes and others aren't leaving the city and saying I don't want to build here anymore.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Kelly Wendell commented and she said 2197. I don't know what that means. Do either of you know
1: that? Is that a bill? That's the year Multnomah County figures it out. <laughs> I think that's optimistic, Kelly. <laughs> you know, my clients don't have a problem with Multnomah County when I talk to them and they say, Hey Joe, we want to find a, a house. They just simply say, Not Multnomah County. So we yeah. don't put any any time there. We don't burn any brain tissue. You know, they go into it as to why, and they don't have to, but they talk about tax structure and homeless and the RIP project that is kind of turning it into, actually, it it might be providing a little bit more residential living, but it's also a parking nightmare, the way they structure it, that they don't like off-street parking. You know, there's something else, and I don't know if you guys touch on this or not. But kind of in the in the front of a lot of communities, there's people pro and people against STRs, short-term rentals. So, you know, you have a you have a place, whether it's at the coast, whether it's at Sun River, whether it's up at the mountain, you have these STRs. And while you have primary residences there as well, these people are making like three X in rent on a short-term rental as they would if they rented it to a a family for, you know, a year, a one-year lease, because they get the money for the weekend, they get cleaning fees and all the other stuff. And the argument is you have the people that live there full time, and you can guarantee that every Friday and Saturday night someone's gonna have a 10-foot fire. They're gonna drink some cold beverages and howl at the moon. They're gonna leave garbage around, or or if, if you're at the mountain, they put it in a non-bear rated garbage can. So the bears get into it and throw it all around. Parking problems. And I know that some of these communities are moving towards a no STR, like a 30 day minimum. And some people, it's like a six month minimum. How do you think these STRs are affecting the landscape of the Greater Portland Metro and extended areas.
3: It's
4: a it's a great great question. It's interesting you should bring that up. There there's actually was a couple of court cases out of Washington State that just came down around this STR issue, sort of revisiting a recent decision. And I know this is sort of out of the region, but it was up in Chelan County. But it was was pretty interesting. It wasn't there wasn't the the local governments trying to restrict them. But it was the neighborhood associations themselves trying to amend their their covenants to prevent, you know, the midnight parties that you were talking about, because they would be hearing their STR tenants hoot and holler at you know two in the morning <laughs> on every every weekend up there, and you know it's it's this sort of like this weird intersection between you know real property law and land use law that. We're we're sort of seeing a reaction to it. So I think a lot of neighborhoods in and of themselves would, you know, like to get rid of the the tenants and, you know, they're looking at potentially amending their CCRs to to do that, but that becomes legally a little bit problematic. And and so now, you know, they're starting to result to going to local governments to have the local government pass these ordinances to try to restrict these STRs there. And I, I think, you know, in some jurisdictions, they're having mixed success with them in, in doing that. I think from a, a housing policy standpoint, though, you know, it, it does make a lot of sense to me that we are trying to preserve the existing housing stock for uh, the residences of those communities rather than just utilize them for tourism. And, but the free market person of me also say, well, <laughs> you know.
3: It yeah. does It does
1: kill well, housing, like long, long-term housing for people under the guise of making a profit because they're buying all these investment properties and only renting them really, really short term, which I see lots of problems. I see there's even a bigger housing problem because these are potential homes that could be up for rent for a six-month or a year lease. It kind of kills hotels and some of those other places, but it's also good for restaurants and, you know, bicycle rentals and ski rentals and all that other stuff. I went to a board meeting up at the mountain and they were sort of talking about wanting to limit these STRs. And after leaving the meeting, I just kind of shook my head and I said, this is never, ever going to happen because it was just a few passionate people who didn't like it. And you have this huge confluence of everyone who owns a rental there that's making 3X of what they could rent, or they can go work on it for a week and write the whole thing off and enjoy a one week vacation. I think they're starting to implement that in certain areas, like in the coast where you can't do it so much, but well, okay. So the different segue, and I, I know we're talking about land use, but it's also sort of building codes and retrofitting. The city of Milwaukee banned new construction that has Northwest natural gas.
0: Was it Milwaukee or Eugene? I thought it was Did Milwaukee. Did Milwaukee do it too? Because I know I know Eugene tried and then they got reversed, I heard. Well, yeah, that yeah. is an interesting conversation. I, I'm curious your guys' take on that.
1: Yeah. What do you think about that, especially <laughs> with more people having electric cars California having brownouts and blackouts. I'm really curious of the reason why they did it, but what are your views on the city mandating what you can and can't use for power?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's listen, it, it's a great question, and it's one that a lot of communities across this country are having. The regulations you mentioned from Eugene were modeled after some regulations in Berkeley and Milwaukee and, and a number of cities throughout the region are, are having these conversations. I think, Jody, your, your first question is why a lot of people who are concerned about carbon emissions Look to natural gas and say, I, I, I see less of a carbon footprint with electricity when it's renewably generated. Therefore, we should be using electricity. But uh, as you noted, right, there's really no free lunches in this business, and so you know we're we're in a state that has. Tremendous heat in the summer, but it, we also get tremendous cold in the winter. And and I'm sure a number I'm sure a number of your listeners remember the horrific impacts of the snowstorm of, of several years ago in the communities of Westland, Lake Oswego, and 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 Portland, when a number of power lines went down and and folks were hard pressed to find heating. So it's it can be particularly challenging. And I think this is an issue that's going to be with us. For for years to come, as conversations around climate change continue to persist, yeah, I think in in
4: Washington State in particular, I think they're they're even looking at more aggressive, potentially statewide limitations on new gas appliances, and I, I think it's just probably a topic that we'll be talking a lot more about in housing here in the next decade to come.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of Momentum against natural gas for sure, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Which is unfortunate in some ways because I remember it wasn't that long ago, just a few years ago. I mean, that was a requirement of a lot of home buyers; they they had to have that. There are some cooktops that are coming out that, and I forget the name of it. Help me out, Joe, if you remember. But that's instant heat without the natural gas. It's
3: induction or something. What
0: is it? Uh, induction. Yeah, 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 yep. Yeah, yeah. So there are some there are some things coming along that hopefully could help in the event that it, that it is eventually does go in that direction. But but it is a big change, and and it's it's kind of happening under our feet. It feels like now. What was the reason for the reversal in Eugene? There was a was there a federal court that that reversed that? Do you guys know the details there?
4: Yeah, I believe I believe it was a federal court saying that the city didn't have the authority to to regulate that 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 wasn't within their their purview to do so. And I think, you know, philosophically speaking, I'm not opposed to the Northwest and California being the leaders in the world, for that matter, on climate change issues. I think it's extremely important. And maybe this isn't going to be a future topic for us, but I've got a lot of concerns that the Northwest in general is not planning enough for potential migration into our area from places that are just getting, you know, warmer for instance. And so, you know, we're struggling to meet our population needs now, what happens if that gets exacerbated in the future? But what uh, long way of seeing it is I'm not sure that doing, you know, bans on a city by city basis is necessarily the best way to go about affecting the policy in this area. I think it, it needs to you know, happen at a state and maybe larger level, figure out, mm-hmm. what what objectives we're trying to achieve and, you know, houses, you know, modern houses, as, as, as Red knows says, you know, representing a couple of home building companies for coming back to laws, you know, they're, they're built really, you know, energy efficient wise and building codes require that. And so it's oftentimes the, the older housing stock or the older building stocks that are the ones that, you know, may need the help, and and yet all the new regulations tend to focus on the new construction, and so you're you're getting infinitesimal returns by continuing your required things. All you're doing is adding cost to the the, the mm-hmm. house, which which isn't maybe a smart way to to do things. I think we may have to fundamentally shift and think about how to go back and retrofit existing stuff as a as a better means to sort of achieve these climate policies.
0: Such a good point. Such a good point, yeah. Because here you, yeah, you. It's just a, it's a conundrum where you, you're trying to affect change on a climate level with new housing, which is such a microcosm of what's actually the housing stock. Yet it's also impeding that new housing stock through cost, which then causes a ripple effect of of another
1: problem. So yeah, there was. It makes you wonder why would they mandate in Milwaukee, you know, electric only, you know, heat pumps and such, why wouldn't they also mandate that a certain percentage of the roof line had to be solar? I mean, they're they're dictating the power that you draw from, but they're not proposing a solution of where that extra power comes from. It's just, I mean, if they have the authority to to dictate that, then they might as well bundle it and say, hey, you know, only electric, and you're going to need to generate your own electricity, or at least that portion. It's, mm-hmm. I don't think all of the these rules and regulations are very well thought out, and that's my biggest frustration with the cities and counties kind of telling us what to do. Some I agree with, a lot of them I don't.
4: Well, you have, you have to think about it from the regulator's standpoint, and I know this is a discussion we often have. But it's easier to attack the new construction where there isn't a resident living in it yet, versus going and making requirements on you know existing neighborhoods where you have people that are you know living there and you know sort of bought into it. And so this is, I, I think, why they always sort of chase the the new construction versus looking at uh, things to do the retrofit. But I, I think there has to be this fundamental shift in the way we're going about doing this because we're getting diminishing returns on doing things on the new construction versus going in and maybe doing the retrofitting the existing stock.
0: Yeah. Good point. Hey, Joe, just for clarification, are you talking about Milwaukee, Wisconsin?
1: No, Milwaukee here. Okay. Okay. Maybe it it was, was. uh, you know, I read a headline, so don't always believe headlines and, you know, but I thought it was Milwaukee here.
0: Yeah, well, they are spelled differently, just so you know.
1: <laughs> um, okay, I,
0: I I hadn't heard that one. We'll we'll have to research that. Yeah. There was another topic you guys had brought for us: a review of the current state of affairs for buildable land in the Portland region. And you also said "and more," so I'll let you guys run with that. And then the the more.
2: Well, we're always and more. <laughs> I think, you know, we talked a little bit about our housing deficit here. If you look at the Portland region, I think most recent numbers say we're missing about 60,000 units of housing, probably about 100,000 if you look at, if you expand beyond that down towards the Salem area and in the southern part of the state. And and the, and the way that we come up with those numbers is essentially looking at population growth in the form of household formation. And and you, on the other hand, you look at the number of housing units built, All right, And so this many people moved in, do we build this much housing for them? And, you know, we're roughly building about seven homes of all types for every 10 families that come to the Portland region. Right. And so just doing the math right there, you're right. You're, you're, there's, there's an existing deficit and that deficit has existed and grown actually since the Great Recession. So that's, that's how we get to our 60,000 number in, in the Portland region. So cities, you know, in recognizing this, I think are starting to, you know really really think about their long-term growth and we have a couple of great leaders in the region you know Beaverton and Hillsboro have done fantastic work on the west side as is Tigard the city of Tigard recently just got approval for a large expansion Of of their existing community that's going to bring, I believe, thousands of of housing units over the next couple of decades, which will be fantastic. King City. King City, similarly, essentially doubling in size and and building some fantastic uh, amenities for, for future residents there. But, you know, one of the oddities of our system is that we require a ton of inputs into the hopper before we can even allow one acre of land to convert from farmland to non-farm uses. This is fairly unique to to Oregon. There are similar systems in place in Washington, California, and other places. But but by and large, we require a ton of inputs. A lot of information needs to go in to justify, again, that one acre converted to non-farmland use. And Oftentimes, the information that jurisdictions put in that hopper may be out of date or or may not be reflective of the true situation as it exists today. A great example is the city of Hillsborough, who's currently going through its long-term planning process to determine how much housing it's going to need in the next 20 years. And they received a number from Metro, the, the regional government, that says, you know, they're gonna grow a, a certain amount. But that amount is is really very low. And so the city of Hillsboro, in conjunction with some folks in the building community, really scrutinize those numbers and are looking at them intently and saying do we want to grow the bare minimum or do we want to prepare, as as Jamie mentioned, for the influx of people that are going to continue to come to our region in the next couple of decades? Because as cities know, if, if you don't allow for the housing to come, then it's very difficult for the major employers to relocate or expand because their employees can't find enough housing. And so... To its credit, the city of Hillsborough, again, in conjunction with the local development community, is scrutinizing these inputs that I I mentioned such that they can really true them up and make sure that the numbers are sound, such that the basis for growth is reflective of our actual needs. That's a super, super long-winded way of essentially saying... We believe, and the development community believes writ large, that the growth that we have seen here over the past several decades will continue and increase, not as some of the academic bigwigs say will decrease, based on data that 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 may have existed on a, on a one-year time frame during the pandemic. So. Um, One thing for for your members to think about with regards to the long-term health of, of the region is are cities acknowledging the fact that growth is going to continue here over the next years? And if so, are they acknowledging that fact by putting the appropriate inputs into their analysis when they look at future growth? So it's it's a dry subject, I know, but I think that I think the takeaway here is that cities are starting to really scrutinize how they how they come up with knowing how much they should grow and that 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 scrutiny is, is at least in in the, the circumstances that we're seeing it a real benefit to the 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 home selling community at large
4: and then on the, the Washington side the other side of the Columbia Clark County is embarking on their urban growth boundary urban growth area update that Washington State requires as part of their Growth Management Act. And this process just sort of kicked off this year. It's set to conclude in, in June of 2025. Washington's system came along a little bit later than Oregon's system. And so they, they they kind of adopted a little bit of a different system. And it's a, it's a little bit more local control and local decision-making and sort of these policies in terms of how they're growing in relation to the, the math that Ezra was describing with the Buildable Lands report. So right now, there's a lot of folks in the the home building and real estate industry and also from the economic development side of things that have been giving real-time feedback to the decision makers as to what they're seeing on the ground in terms of consumption of real estate, as well as how the new regulations around environment and climate and stuff are impacting their ability to, you know, fully utilize the, the property, and you know they're they're trying to reconcile that to come up with what the actual need will be there to accommodate Clark County's population, which will carry into you know twenty forty three, and so while Oregon is doing this analysis, uh, Clark County is just embarking on their end, and, and so I think that there'll be a lot of opportunity for those of us in sort of the real estate development community to give appropriate input to those jurisdictions and and hopefully try to guide them towards policies that will help us accommodate both the need for housing and jobs in the future.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. We do have a question from one of our listeners, Dan Hardy. Didn't it take 25 years for McMinnville to get any urban growth expansion? Do Do either of you know anything about that? Yes. (laughs)
2: Yes. <laughs> Long, short answer, yes. Longer answer, yeah. It, it takes decades for cities to bring land in. And that's why it's so important to make sure that the early conversations around projected growth are, are accurate because at the end of the day, once that land comes in, the population's already going to be here and you need adequate supply in order to meet their demand.
3: Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah.
1: That's funny. I, I've had clients that have speculatively bought property on the line of the UGB, just thinking, hey, this thing's going to convert, and now I'm going to sell it for 10x when this can be divided. Well, fast forward 25 years, it's still the same zoning. So it's, it's pretty interesting that people used to do that in the past, thinking, I'm buying this, they're going to convert it to high-density I'm going to make a killing and then I retire. Well,
4: I know know I'll probably get a bunch of hate email for this, but Stafford is the classic example, right? You know, here you're thinking this, this area of land is right on 205. It has got freeway access. There's opportunities for employment, you know, all throughout the region. And yet that land has been sort of held as this sacrosanct, sacred cow that hasn't allowed expansion in it. Whereas you know Metro in the past chose places like Damascus or the former city of Damascus and not which was
0: a mess wasn't it a mess which was a complete which
4: a complete mess and there's there's sort of this recognition okay it's it's not high value farmland but from a development standpoint you've got vertical vertical curves which create problems for you know pumping sewer out of stuff getting water there it's a transportation cost too much too much money. And so, you know, I, I I think that again, there needs to be rethinking. Uh, not only is it appropriate for you know farm use there, but there there also needs to be this real world calculation: is how expensive is it to serve these these properties, and not not pick areas for expansion that are so expensive to develop that you're never gonna you're never gonna utilize that. So otherwise, why have the land there? Just
3: mm-hmm. to, just
4: just to say you can meet a population that you'll never intend, will never practically happen.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and how long is the infrastructure for schools and stores and commerce? And, you know, you can build your house there, but you might have to wait 10 years before everything kind of fills in. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: That kind of reminds me of the uh, area over in Beaverton, where near Mountainside High School. Lots of housing going up, lots of housing, but you're not seeing the commercial infrastructure follow suit yet. And and that could change, but it's it's interesting. I guess that brings up another question. You guys are in the front lines of this. Do you guys have any guesses as to where the the next annexations or or developments like will be? Obviously, South Hillsboro has been big for a few years, and and then that area off Roy Rogers and Shoals has been big. Is there Is there something that we're not that should be on our radar that could be another big area for expansion? Well, I think I think
4: you know under the new system, the cities really have to raise their hand and say we want to do the the planning exercise here to justify those expansions, and and you get these land exchanges or land swaps, which allow certain jurisdictions to to grow, and I think that that's what we're seeing in. Some of these areas in, in Washington County, like Sherwood and King City and Hillsboro, and others, I suspect that the growth pressure is still going to sort of be in that westerly direction. Um, mm-hmm. I know that a lot of our our clients have, you know, pushed beyond the the Tri County region here and are doing stuff in Yamhill County, certainly Newburgh, McMinnville, Lafayette, as well as like these. Places I used to think were the moon. I mean, no offense to Estacada, but you know, Estacada, there's there's a lot of development going there, and it. I think Cascade Locks. You know, that's a reflection of how expensive things are here in the Tri County. You know, the immediate core, I guess, area that people are having to, to push out further and further away to find affordable housing.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's also a testament to the fact. The world's changed a little bit and there is a little bit of a migration away from urban areas. I, I've, you know, I growing up, I, I grew up in a small town outside of Salem and everybody wanted to go to the big city, go to, go to Portland, right? That was, and now I feel a little bit as, as an, as a, you know, a busy real estate agent, I I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people going, Hey, I'm, I'm selling my house and moving to Dundee or McMinnville or. And I think part of that is just, you know, some of the after effects of, you know, the homeless crisis, you know, taxation in the Tri-County area, the, all the little, you know, ancillary taxes they're throwing on everything. And and just, it's it's an interesting trend that's, that's occurring. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in housing and development as well.
4: Yeah, I agree. I, I think that, you know, the, the Metro region certainly Will still be attractive to out-of-state buyers, because you know people, particularly coming from California or maybe the Seattle area, th- this is still a relative bargain. Maybe where where they can't afford to purchase houses where they're residing currently.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Hey, well, you guys have been fantastic. Do you, Ezra? Do you have anything more in the more category? Or are you guys all good?
2: Yeah, I think we touched on a ton of great stuff. It, it, it's a real treat joining you, Joe and Steve. Thank you for having us. And, you know, it, it's it's a crazy world out here. It's going to continue to be crazy. You know, as, as realtors, I think it's, it's super valuable for you to stay on top of things that happen in the land use world. Because as you said, That's the land that's going to get brought in two decades from now. Those are the homes that are going to be built three years from now. And at the end of the day, those are the units that are going to keep realtors employed and and selling homes throughout the region.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I would also, I would also say, Ezra, anytime you guys have a new subject or topic or something that's happening, please reach out to me and we'd love to get you guys back on the show and, 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 and do this again for sure. So, well, any final thoughts, Joe, before we uh, cut it all
1: loose? Nope. It's, it was, it was good. We learned some stuff and I, I'm, I'm convicted that I am not a new construction guy. All of this stuff is important for my work, but I don't think I have the bandwidth. I don't think my marriage could survive building new construction. And, you know, what, what was spurred in COVID was everyone ran out and bought us a, a sprinter van. I, I think that's still going on. You know, people like people but they don't mind driving a half an hour to be with them and then they want to drive a half hour and get away from them. And I think the hot spots are the outskirts of the Tri-County area and I think that's where a lot of people are trying to uproot and go out that way, far Clackamas County or further west beyond, you know, Hillsboro, Forest Grove, North Plains. I think that's that's the trend. So mm-hmm. Anyway, thanks for being on the show, both of you guys. Yeah, thank you. Steve, how about you? Anything? Parting
0: no, words? All good. All good. Okay. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for your contributions, those of you that chimed in on the Facebook group. And we'll be getting this out as a podcast here in the next
1: couple of days. All right. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Portland Real Estate Podcast, Oregon and Washington's number one show for cutting-edge real estate discussions. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the members of Masters in Real Estate, a private and exclusive Facebook group, and the number one source for all real estate topics. Thanks for being there, gang. I love you. Finally, I want to thank our faithful listeners. Without an audience, we're just two guys talking to each other. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so the new episodes automatically come to you. Make it great.